The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee. Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since, and now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Welcome to the podcast. Your host, Victoria Moran, author of Creating a Charmed Life, Younger by the Day, and Main Street Vegan, invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body, cozy up to your soul, and use your unique gifts to change the world. Now, here's Victoria. You know, sometimes when you grow up and you meet somebody who could have been one of the cheerleaders... It's just so awesome. And I am so excited to tell you that we have a cheerleader of the spiritual world as our guest today. And do you know what that makes all of us? The in crowd. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope that it is a delicious hour away from anything that might be troubling you and into uplift and laughter and excitement and hope and promise and all the good stuff. And this amazing popular kid who is my guest today is someone that I'm sure you know and most likely love. She is Ariel Ford a gifted writer and the author of 12 books, including the international bestseller, The Soulmate Secret, Manifest the Love of Your Life with the Law of Attraction. And today we're going to be talking about her debut novel, The Love Thief. The tagline for The Love Thief, she says, he broke her heart, crushed her dreams until karma intervened. Hmm, that's intriguing. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you, Victoria. I'm so happy to be with you. Well, it's wonderful, wonderful to be talking with you. And you know, when I talked about your being like a grown-up cheerleader, and I don't know if you were a cheerleader, but you've always seemed to me to be someone who's on the cutting edge. If there's something new, you know it. If there's something cool, you're doing it. If somebody is doing something that the rest of us ought to know about, you're there to tell us. Is that how you see yourself too? 
No, not really. I, I was a baton twirler, <laughs> but I wasn't a cheerleader, so I didn't get to talk that much. But my my favorite thing in life is I call myself a student of love. And I like to go out there and learn new things and then try them out in my own relationship and then share them with other people. So that brings me great joy. So you're known for the whole soulmate idea and and making the relationships that we have more magical. And if we're looking for one, finding one that's magical so we don't have to do anything to it. So how did that come about? Yeah, so um, becoming a love and relationship expert wasn't on my to-do list. <laughs> Uh, what happened was I woke up one morning when I was 43 years old and I had this epiphany that I, you know, like I forgot to get married. Like what happened? <laughs> I had this amazing business and a great life, but nobody to share it with. And I decided that I was going to take everything I knew about manifestation because I'd used it quite successfully in my business and apply it to my love life. And within a year, I manifested the man of my dreams. And next month, we're celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. But what happened out of that was, at that point, every single woman over 40 that I knew kept coming to me saying, how did you do it? And I would share my process, and it would happen for them too. And, you know, without even intending it, a publisher came to me and asked me to write a book about manifesting a soulmate and I did and it took off and I had this whole new career suddenly I was you know traveling to speak and leading workshops and writing more books and it just sort of all fell in my lap well it sounds like you've manifested all sorts of things you had one successful business then you manifested the soulmate then you manifested this other magical career and being being in the world so I know we're here to talk about novels and romance and karma but just so that nobody leaves feeling a lack tell us a little bit about manifesting as a general way of being in the world okay so the truth is, just like gravity is always working, even though you don't think about it and you don't necessarily see it, we human beings are always manifesting. So our thoughts and our beliefs and our emotional state are constantly drawing to us the people, places, and things that we're focused on. So manifesting is about being an emotionally mature human being and managing our thoughts and our emotions. So let's say you're a single person and you don't want to be single anymore. The first thing I want you to understand is that there's no shortage of love in the world. No matter what the stupid things are going through your mind, I'm too old, I'm too fat, I'm too damaged, all the good ones are taken, I live in the wrong city. None of that is true. All right. The other thing that is also not true is that God has not selected you as the person who's not going to find love. There are 8 billion people alive on the planet and half of them are single. There's no shortage of potential conscious men and women out there to connect with. The only thing getting in most people's way is their beliefs about it, one, and two, their huge resistance to not having it fall into their lap, to not taking the action steps necessary to become visible and available so that somebody can connect with you. 
So there's many, many steps to it, but I would say the best way to think about it is, let's say you have a job that you really love and you get fired from your job and you're a single mom or a single dad with three children. You're not gonna sit home on the couch by yourself thinking, that's it, my life's over. There's no other jobs out there for me. You're gonna know exactly what to do. You're gonna get your resume in order. You're gonna go on interviews. You're gonna join job sites. You're gonna tell everybody you know, hey, I'm looking for a job. And on some level, you know that a job's gonna come because it has to. And it's the same thing with you know, manifesting a mate. If it becomes your number one priority, and you're willing to take the daily baby steps to become more visible, and you're willing to manage your negative thinking, then all of that is possible. And I guess anything is possible. And hanging out with you uh, <laughs> makes it even more so. It's interesting, when I was in my 40s, and I had been widowed for nine years, and somebody did some kind of study and this was before 9-11 this was before terrorism was something that had happened frequently and and uh in the terrible way that it was happening there for several years somebody did some sort of survey and said that for a woman over 40 right. maybe it was right. over 45 yeah. no it was a story in newsweek magazine that said a single woman over 40 had a better chance of being killed by a terrorist than finding a husband. Yes. Yes. And, and it's that not came, true. It's well, and, and I realized that it was not. But when that came out, it was just like it wanted to nest in me. And I remember consciously rejecting it. And then I did meet my husband and I was 46 and we have lived happily ever after. But yeah, those outside messages want to get in you. So we'll yeah, take our I, messages. Last, last week, I got emails from three former clients of mine, all women over 60. Two of the three had never been married. All of them followed my Soulmate Secret program. All of them are now either married or engaged. So oh. it's never too late. I've had clients as old as 80 manifest a soulmate off of match.com <laughs> you know it's there's just so many resources out there but you have to be willing to let go of your resistance to it you know if, if you ask 99 out of 100 people about online dating they're going to say to you oh i tried it it didn't work or i tried it and it doesn't work and that's not true you may have tried it but maybe you didn't know what you were doing you know, I give away a free how to date online guide on my website. It's 100% free. It totally works. And you have to know how to do it. And you have to go into it knowing and understanding that 90% of the time you will be disappointed because everything they say is true, right? There are people who are going to ghost you. There are scam artists out there. There are unpleasant people. There are people who post pictures that aren't even them. All of that is true. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you only need one. And if you're willing to stick it out, you will find the one. It's like the modern version of kissing a lot of frogs before you it's find totally the that. Exactly. <laughs> and and the website, everybody, if you would like that guide, is arielford.com. Uh, and there's also a website for the new novel 
and that is thelovethief.com. So let's move on to that. But first, as a nonfiction author myself, I have to know what inspired you to write any novel and then <laughs> this particular one. Yeah, well, I, you know, I had already written 11 nonfiction books and never once in my life did I have the thought, oh, I should write a novel. That never happened. What happened was this book showed up in my head like a, a movie and it kept playing for me every day. And the title came and the first line of the book came and I kept pushing it away. I kept saying, go away. I don't know how to write a novel. I don't want to write a novel. Go away. And it wouldn't go away. And the more that I could see the novel unfolding as a movie in my head, I could see that it, it was taking place in Rishikesh, India, one of the holiest cities in India that I had visited several times. And at the same time that was happening, I was also taking online classes with masterclass.com. And I got this email from them one day that they had just opened up a new Dan Brown course called How to Write a Thriller. And Dan Brown, author of The Da Vinci Code, is my favorite author. And I thought, oh, well, I, you know, I have the unlimited program with Masterclass. Let me just tune in and see what it's like to hear Dan Brown talk about his process. And I get on, and what's he talking about? Location as a character in the book and how Florence, Italy was a character in The Da Vinci Code. And when he said those words, this light bulb went off, and I was like, oh, my God. If I'm going to write this book, I need to go back to Rishikesh. I have all this research to do. I need to walk the streets and smell the air and see the sights and taste the taste. And at the same time, there was no part of me that wanted to write a novel and I was in total resistance. And so since it was persisting and wouldn't leave me alone, I had a conversation with God. And I said, okay, God, if I'm meant to write this book, I will manifest a business class ticket to India. And those are about $7,000. And then I just took this big breath and thought, okay, that's never going to happen. And two days later, I had the ticket in my hand. So at that point, I knew that I was destined to write this book and I have spent the last four and a half years writing it. Well, that's quite a story <laughs> in itself. But you know, I've had those conversations with God and some of those amazing things that happen. I think because they don't happen daily, lots of times people say, well, that almost never happens. But if it happens even a few times in a life, it makes such a difference. It just um, makes everything true. So yeah. you've got this wonderful book. You've got this delightful lead character, female protagonist. But then you have this villain who is so mean, I can't imagine that lovely spiritual woman, Ariel Ford, could even imagine such a nasty person. Where did well, it come from? Well, um, so the one of the big themes of the book is betrayal. My protagonist is betrayed on the deepest level by her fiance and her best friend, and then she nearly dies in a car accident, and she's at the bottom of the pit. And this evil character is a mashup of personalities of three different men, three of my friends had had relationships with. So even though it's not, I can't point and say, oh, in real life, he's so-and-so, what this character does in the book has been done to one of these three friends of mine. So it was really fun to write it. And 
I don't know where we got the idea that revenge is not a spiritual quality, <laughs> but there's a lot of, a lot of, there's a big revenge subplot in the book. And I really enjoyed writing that because it's about karma, you know, and, and when you do bad things and bad things happen to you, I think if you're the victim of those bad things, it's cause for celebration. So it was a lot of fun to write. Cause for celebration because it's burning off your bad karma? No, because somebody who did bad things is getting getting their due. I see. Huh, cool. So you went to India, which is such a magical place. And yet I think for so many Westerners who go there, such a difficult place. So what happened when you went back to Rishikesh to do this research? Well, the strangest thing that happened was that as I had been seeing the book play out as a movie in my head, you know, I didn't have specific scenes in mind. I didn't, I couldn't say like where in Rishikesh was the spiritual bookstore. And yet I went to Rishikesh and I kept tripping over the stuff I had been imagining. I tripped into the spiritual bookstore where a lot of the, the book takes place. I, you know, I tripped into the ashram uh, where Holly has these mystical experiences. So it was as if unseen guides were taking me by the hand and taking me through Rishikesh and leading me to the parts of the book that I needed to gather up all the detail on so I could describe it in a really kaleidoscopic way to the reader. Hmm. So you write a lot, and I presume think a lot about romantic love and human relationships, but I am 100% convinced that you can have a lifelong love affair with a place. For me, that's London. And mm -hmm. for you, it seems to be India. So tell us about that particular love affair. Well, I remember on my very first trip there, people had tried to tell me what it would be like when I got to the Delhi airport, more importantly, when I exited the Delhi airport. And no matter how much they talked to me about it, I couldn't really grasp what they were talking about. So I landed there at two o'clock in the morning. It was relatively quiet inside the airport. It was it was old and shabby because this was a very long time ago, but it was okay. I walked out of the airport and it was like this sea of humanity was coming at me. There were hundreds of women in colorful saris and hundreds of men wearing turbans and dhotis and all kinds of Indian garb. And there were the three wheeled uh, tuk-tuks and beeping horns. And then there was this fog of, of smoggy air that smelled like kerosene. And so all my senses were attacked at once. And at that moment, standing there, I fell madly in love with a country. So that was my first day. Do you think it was recognition from the past or, or just an alignment of energies? No, I think I, I, I really believe I've had past lives in India because I noticed that I felt so at home, that in spite of the crowds and in spite of how different everything looked, I just felt completely at ease as if these were my people and this was my land. And on a certain level, I was able to breathe deeper than I ever had before. That'll tell you something. What a beautiful story. So now let's get back to romance with 
humans. So pretty much everybody knows what it's like to have a broken heart. A lot of people have been cheated on in some way or other. So what's the message that you hope readers will take away when they read The Love Thief? Well, there's a there's a couple of them. Um, the first thing to know is that there's a woman named Dr. Helen Fisher, who's the world's leading love anthropologist. And she has done research that has proven that overcoming a broken heart is harder than overcoming an addiction to cocaine. So if you've had your heart broken and if it's been hard to recover from, or if you still haven't recovered, please know that you're not a freak, that it really is that hard. Okay, the first thing is, the second thing is there's a lot of messages of hope within the story and know that you can recover it. And there are characters in the book who, who actually share their wisdom about how to overcome a broken heart and not be left bitter, be open to love again, and that love does come again when you least expect it. And I guess the most important message in the book is that when you're at your lowest point in life, as Holly was, you know, betrayed by her fiance and her best friend, nearly died in a car crash, broken bones, and she lost her business, like every part of her life at age 38 was shattered. What came out of that? What were things that were beyond her imagination, a life that blossomed that she couldn't have imagined? So just as they say, a, a lotus grows in the mud. You know, we know the story of the phoenix arising, that if you were at your lowest point, be grateful that you've hit rock bottom and then know and trust that it is going to lead to something beyond your wildest dreams. That is so beautiful because <laughs> I've experienced that so often. I remember talking to various mentors and spiritual guides and saying, it's almost like at least my life is a trampoline that before I'm going to go really high, I have to go really low. And I used to get down on myself about that because I thought, well, you must not be thinking properly or you wouldn't be attracting all of this stuff. But as you have mentioned, karma, and that's a thing too. And I think sometimes we go through some of the more difficult parts and then it opens up our soul somehow to allow the really amazing things to come in. Yeah, I mean, life is one step forward, two steps back. And it's not just like for you or for me, it's like that for everybody. But somehow when the bad stuff happens, you know, we go into this retraction, like, you know, why me? Or how did I cause this? Or how am I responsible? Or, you know, we see somebody else going through a bad time and we start judging them. Well, what thoughts did they have? Well, how did they do, you know, how did they magnetize this to themselves? And we blame the victim. And it's so unfair because we don't know, right? We don't know. And we need to just allow for the reality of shit happens, right? It just does. And I actually just wrote an essay today that I haven't figured out what, what to do with yet, but it's called The Problem with Happy. Because I was a student mm. of happiness for a long time. Growing up, I, I dealt with a lot of depression and suicide ideation. And I was just a wreck until my late 20s. And then I decided that I was going to study happy people and I was going to become a happy person. And that's what let me into, you know, personal growth and, and manifestation stuff and all of that. And then what happened 
was that I discovered that there's something better than happy. Because the truth about happy is that it's dependent on people, places, things, and experiences. You know, it's on the, the new love, the new job, the new car, the, you know, <laughs> the new this, the new that. And then eventually they break or they go away or we end up disappointed and frustrated. So happy's not the goal. But I discovered this word in Sanskrit called santosha. Mm. And santosha means utter contentment utter contentment. So when we are in Santosha, we're not being driven by the waves of happiness or grief. We can stay centered in the accepting of what is and be content in spite of the, the chaos around us. And of course, it's not easy. And it, it requires, you know, taming your monkey, your monkey mind. But Santosha, for me, at least at this point in my life, is the place to aim for as opposed to I, I want to be happy. Because the happiness comes and goes. Well, let's just take a moment in Santosha then and be content. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ariel Ford author of The Love Thief, your very first novel on top of about a dozen magnificent nonfiction books. So definitely uh, check her out at her website, uh, arielford.com and on Amazon. So as we're talking about a woman who went through a really hard time in a relationship and then uh, things turned around thanks to a little help from karma, there are women that just tend to fall for people who have psychological problems with actual names, like a narcissist and sociopath. So as somebody who's an expert in relationships, do you have any advice on what to look for, how to avoid folks like that? Yeah, yes, I do. And most women won't listen to me. <laughs> and here's why. The toxic narcissist or sociopath often tend to be attractive, charismatic, smart men who, who target 
smart, successful, attractive women. So if you've been targeted by somebody like that, no, it's not your fault. It wasn't like you woke up at, you know, woke up this morning and said, how can I get my heart broken? No, you didn't do that. But you did get love bombed. And love bombing is a real thing. So you're love bombed when suddenly this man shows up and he's romancing you and he's moving things along really fast and he's whispering in your ear all the things you ever wanted to hear. And he's painting a picture of a future with you that's exactly like you've been hoping, dreaming and wishing for forever. And then you're hooked. You 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 smoke the hopium pipe, right? And you're now an addict to this toxic narcissist and everything's fine until it isn't, till who he really is begins to show up. And suddenly you're in this crazy place where you know that good, nice, kind, compassionate, romantic guy is in there. You just spent a couple of months with him. Now, who is this asshole who's treating you like dirt and lying to you and gaslighting you and having you question your sanity? So it's it's unfortunate, but it happens all the time. And I only know so much about it because not only did it happen to me early on in my life, but it happened to three of my best girlfriends. And I watched it. I was the person on the other end of the phone as they were going through this roller coaster of emotions from extreme anger and rage and wanting to murder somebody to the depths of grief and depression and, and being so bereft they didn't know if they could survive and what that was like because it's it's a terrible place to be. And most of the time, it's not your fault. You have been prey. You have been targeted. And I know what you mean about these certain types of, of people, and I'm sure there are women in that category too, as a heterosexual woman, I've you know seen it more with men and like you say, uh, relationships of friends. But when they're so attractive, they make the nice guy through and through seem unattractive. So what's your advice on you meet a nice guy, but you just think, the spark is not there. Yes. Save yes. time and just say spark is not there. Or do you give the nice guy two or three dates and see if something sparks over time? Or five. You know, um, I'm going to tell you a quick story which answers that question. So I had a client years ago named Jennifer. And Jennifer was always looking for the, you know, the hot, hot, hot attraction, the butterflies in the stomach you know, this intensity of emotion. And pretty much she would write guys off within, you know, sometimes the first 20 seconds. Nope, he's not it. He's not the one. When it, when I meet the one, I'm going to know. Or she'd meet somebody and it'd be really hot for a couple of weeks. And of course, then who they really were would show up. And I said to her, listen, the only way I can help you, the only way I can work with you is if, you know, any guy that you meet that has enough of your must-haves that you give him a minimum of three dates, if not five. You got to give these guys a chance. And she didn't want to do it. And I remember I talked to her one night and she was about to go on the third date with this one guy who had about 80% of her must-haves. Nice guy, not quite as tall as she would have liked, didn't make as much money as she he would have liked, but he had a good job. He was financially responsible, all around nice guy. And here's what happened. At the end of the third date, they're in his car, he's driving her home, and in her head, she's thinking about how do I let this guy down? There's just no connection. There's just nothing there. 
Ariel's going to kill me, but I just, you know, I can't do it anymore. And at that moment, he hits the brakes, he slams on the brakes because the car in front of him has just hit a dog <gasps> and then drives off. And he sees the dog lying in the road. And he says to the girl, he says to Jennifer, get on your phone, find the closest emergency vet. He jumps out of the car. He scoops up the dog, puts the dog in the back seat. They go to the emergency vet. He carries the dog in. They, they check the dog. It's a broken leg. The dog has a chip. He gets the, the owner's name and number. He calls the woman from the vet and he said, hey, you don't know me. I'm so-and-so. Your dog Cooper's going to be okay. He just has a broken leg, but he, he was a hit and run. And I saw it and I don't be upset. He's going to be okay. And I'm going to bring him home to you. And in that moment, Jennifer fell in love with the guy because she got to see who he really was. She got to see here is a mature man who will take care of me and our children the way he's taking care of a stranger's dog. That's why you got to give guys a chance. What a great story. Oh, my goodness gracious. I love that one. I kind of fell in love with him as you were describing it, but I suppose he and Jennifer are off and, you know, I have my true love anyway. Exactly. So thanks for that. But, you know, that's the thing. You know, people keep thinking that love is a feeling. All right. Most people believe, I know I love you because I feel that. I feel love is a feeling. And the truth is the, the state of being in love is nature's greatest drug trick. It's your brain on drugs. It's your brain on dopamine and oxytocin and adrenaline and things I can't even pronounce. And it feels terrific. But the truth is you're having these feelings and sensations with a stranger that you don't even know. It's nature's trick to get us to procreate and keep the species going. But it is not love. There is no love in the state of being in love. The truth about love is that love is a behavior and love is a choice and it's a decision and it's an action and it's a way of being. And there are good feelings and the feelings come and go. And as anybody who's been in love and been married to their soulmate life partner, there will be days when you don't like them very much or you may even hate them. And it doesn't mean that you don't love them. Ariel, you just took me back to the first wedding that I ever went to with my daughter. She was three years old. This was a lesbian wedding in Kansas City. And a lot of people didn't know they had those in the 80s, but they did. And the officiant was this just marvelous actor. And I remember his saying in his Shakespearean trained voice, we are here today to celebrate love. And love is not an emotion because God is love and God is not an emotion. Wow. <laughs> so cool to hear that line again today from you. Truths kind of recycle. So I know we're, we're coming a little bit close to our time. Oh my goodness, it always goes so fast when you're having fun. But I want to know about your naughty reading more than 5,000 years ago there was a sage who lived in India who wrote down 
the forecast, the future of certain people, and it was written in the language of ancient Tamil on a palm leaf. And then you would go to the priests that were the keepers of these leaves, and they would take your left thumbprint. And using your left thumbprint, they would go through the bundles of leaves to see if there was a leaf for you. And if there is a leaf for you, then you would have your fortune told. And this still exists today in India. And Deepak Chopra had taken my husband and I to a jungle six hours from the closest town in the middle of nowhere to a cement block hut with a single light bulb. And this was before there was Google and the internet. This was a long time ago to have these readings. And it was absolutely fascinating. I had the priest there reading in ancient Tamil. I had a translator going from ancient Tamil to Hindu to English or what we like to call English telling me this stuff about my life that was just mind-blowing everything about what had happened from the moment I was born in this life to what was going to happen up until the date I was going to die and he told me the date time place and circumstance of my death as well as past life influences that were still impacting my life today for instance there was a moment in which I could see the priest and the and the interpreter arguing about something. And there was a lot of head bobbing going on. And, and I could see there was something they didn't want to say to me. And finally, I said to Babu, the translator, I said, just tell me, it's okay, I'm a big girl. And he looked down at his feet. And in the softest voice, he said to me, Madam, I regret to inform you that you will not have any children in this lifetime. And he was so sad. And I said, yes, of course, that's my choice. I never wanted to have children. And then and then he's translating this to the priest and, and they're both looking at me like I'm insane. Like yeah. who would choose not to have children? And then he, he they couldn't grok it at all. And finally he said to me, madam, would you like to know why you will not be blessed with children in this lifetime? It's like, sure, explain it to me. And he said to me, in your last life, you were the only daughter of very good parents and you grew up to be a healer. And in your role as a healer, you performed many illegal abortions. And that is why you carry the karma of no children. Now, I'm getting this in my little room. My husband's in the next little room with his priest and his interpreter under one light bulb. And they say to him, oh, we're so sorry to inform you, sir. You will not have children. And he's like, yes, of course, we didn't want to have children. And it's like, well, would you like to know why? Oh, yes, in your lifetime, you, I don't, they basically told him he was a slut in his last lifetime. Oh. They used polite language, but basically he was banging everybody in the village. And that's why he had the karma of no children in this lifetime. So the naughty readings are real. You no longer have to go to India to get the reading. I have a friend who has a service where you can do it by Zoom. It takes three hours. It costs $500 because there's a lot of work involved. But in the book, uh, at the end of my novel, The Love Thief, I give all the information about how to reach these people and, and, and how it works. And I have had naughty readings in person. And I've also had two naughty readings as well uh, on Zoom. And they were identical in terms of accuracy and authenticity and, and all of that. Oh my goodness. That is, that is utterly thrilling because there, I've had a lot of 
readings of different sorts. And most of them, I think the people have been perfectly honest and well-meaning, but it's sort of like with musicians or anything else, maybe everybody wants to be Mozart, but most are not. And I think it's that way in, in the world of, you know, psychics and whatnot. Right. Well, every the thing now is, and these, then. Pe these people are not psychics. They're actually reading from, from this leaf. I have pictures wow. of the leaves. Like at one point when they said to me, they said to me, your father's name was Harvey. Your mother's name was Sheila. Your husband's name is Brian and your name is Ariel. And I said to them, because I have this on video tip, I said, point to me where on the leaf those words exist. Like, what does Harvey look like in ancient Tamil? Because it looks like an Egyptian hieroglyphics, you know, and it's tiny, tiny little writing on this leaf. So um, it's not, wow. they're not being psychics. They're, they're interpreting real words on a page that were written 5,000 years ago. Wow. Well, I'm going to go get up from here and pull your book off the shelf and <laughs> look in the back for that. That's that's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. So you have something uh, cool going on yourself in addition to all your books and everything. Heart Healing Yoga. It's a video series. Tell us about that. Well, my protagonist, Holly, goes through this wide, crazy range of emotions and when I was putting together the page to promote the book, I thought, oh, why don't I give the readers a bonus that would actually help them? So I went to friends of mine who are some of the top yoga teachers in the world, people like Sean Korn, and I gave them each an emotion. And I said to them, please create a video for me that gives the yoga philosophy on overcoming grief or overcoming betrayal or overcoming uncertainty, and then show us the yoga poses that go with it. So it's a free video series that you get when you order my book at thelovethief.com. And there's 10 videos and it covers, you know, uh, you know, healing a broken heart, you know, releasing anger, uh, forgiveness, connecting with the divine. So it's, it's really a beautiful series. And, uh, and I personally have been using it because sometimes I get pissed off about things. It's like, okay, let me go redo the anger one thing. <laughs> What's the post to release anger? <laughs> so it's really good stuff. So all of it's at thelovethief.com. Okay, excellent, wonderful. So I'm a Beatles fan. I went to my first Beatles press conference at 14. And that was the minute that I knew that even though I had bad skin and was overweight and was not a cheerleader, that I lived a charmed life. So you think that the song, All You Need Is Love, is a big lie. How come? Yes, it's a big <laughs> fat lie. Okay, so All You Need Is Love is the soundtrack, you know, for us baby boomers. And, and it's so many people like to sing along and they believe all you need is love. When it comes to sustaining a long-term committed, happy marriage, love is not enough. Love is not enough. What you need is a lot more than love. So you need connection, compatibility, clear communication, which thank God can be learned. Some chemistry, although chemistry is not the most important thing, the number one most important factor in having a happy long-term relationship 
is a shared vision for the future. You both want to be legally married. You both want to have children or don't. You both want to live under the same roof 24-7 or not. You but you know, you want to be committed and connected, but only see each other three days a week. Whatever it is, the shared vision for the future is the basis for what you need for a long-term happy relationship. Because you could love somebody like crazy and they could be an inappropriate partner for you, right? They could just have all kinds of character flaws or all kinds of issues that, you know, love will not cure addiction. You know, love will not cure chronic uh, laziness and not wanting to work or being financially irresponsible. You know, there's just so many things that love is not enough for. So you can still love these people, but when selecting your lifetime partner, love is not enough. So one last question, Ariel. You are the Cupid of consciousness. You are the fairy godmother of love. These are um, names for you that have been given by people who know. So is the soulmate thing really for real? Out of all the billions of people, is there one person we're supposed to connect with? No. <laughs> no, it's not. Here's, here's the truth. A soulmate is somebody with whom you can totally be yourself, somebody with whom you share unconditional love. And when you look into their eyes, you have the experience of being home. And there are already lots of people in your life that fit that definition. It could be your parents, your kids, your siblings, your best friend, your coworkers, your neighbors, your cats, your dogs. So it isn't that we each only get one big love in a lifetime. There are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of potential romantic soulmate life partners. You know, certainly you could have had somebody that you really felt like was your soulmate and you felt this incredible connection and past life stuff, but they were married or you were married or you lived 5,000 miles apart or it, they just weren't your life partner. So there's no shortage of love in the world. There is no one perfect soulmate. And there are people out there who believe in this thing called twin flames. We're never really going to know for sure if there is a twin flame. And supposedly the twin flame is your other half, your identical other half. From the few people who are supposed experts on the subject, from what I understand, twin flames often do not reincarnate together in the same lifetime. So while there may be that perfect other half for you out there somewhere, if you want to have a life with somebody, don't be waiting for the twin flame. And do, you know, use your left brain and your right brain and your big heart when selecting a soulmate life partner to spend your life with. How lovely. And in the meantime, read a good book. So yeah, here's a little something <laughs> to um, leave with. The Love Thief is a roller coaster ride of love, betrayal, and unexpected transformation with a juicy revenge subplot and a surprise ending. One reviewer said the Love Thief is an emotional journey where you'll finish so completely satisfied you'll want the hypothetical cigarette. <laughs> thank you, Ariel, and thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you. And thank you for being in the world and doing all the great things that you do. And same goes to everybody who's listening. Bless your hearts. Now go out and be remarkable. 
We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy, at MainStreetVegan.com. What is it you really want in life, no matter what you've been through? you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.